Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week on the podcast, we talk to the author of an interesting new book that covers some area of sports. But for this special episode, we have several guests who will offer their expertise on European football. Football is not only a fundamental part of modern European culture, it is also one of the few truly global attractions in sports with the top clubs and national teams of Europe boasting followers around the world. In a few days, close to 200 million people worldwide will watch Chelsea play Bayern Munich in the Champions League final, and a global audience at least that large will watch the final match of the Euro 2012 tournament, which will be played on July 1st in Kyiv, Ukraine. Of course, you can find plenty of commentary on the Champions League final and the upcoming Euro tournament, analyses of player performances and decisions by coaches, and speculation of behind-the-scenes dramas. But in this episode of New Books and Sports, we are taking a different view of soccer in Europe. European football draws the attention of historians, sociologists, economists, and political scientists who look to study not only the structures of the sport itself, but also what the sport reveals about society and culture in Europe. We'll talk with some of these scholars about their research, as well as other experts on world football, to get a more in-depth understanding of the game and its place in contemporary Europe. Whether you are a longtime supporter of a local club, or a recent convert to the beautiful game, I hope that in the next two hours you'll learn something new. At least you'll get plenty of recommendations of football books that will help to fill out your summer reading list. During this episode, we will talk about various aspects of soccer in Europe, the ways that fans identify with clubs, the migration of foreign players in European leagues, the efforts of UEFA to promote women's football, and even the design of football shirts. We are going to start by looking at the economic side of soccer. Last year, the revenue of the entire European football market totaled 16.3 billion euros, just over half of which was generated by the big five leagues in England, Germany, Spain, Italy, and France. Organizers estimate that the Euro 2012 tournament in Poland and Ukraine will generate 1.7 billion euros in revenue from television rights, sponsorships, and ticket and merchandise sales. These are big numbers. But just how big and how meaningful is football in the larger economic picture of Europe? To get a better sense of this, I spoke with Brad Humphreys, professor of economics at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Brad is the author of dozens of articles on the economics and business of sports, and he is a regular contributor to the blog 
The Sports Economist, which you can find at thesportseconomist, all one word, dot com. To get some background at the start, I asked Brad if sports are a large part of the economy in a city like Edmonton or Barcelona or Manchester. No, uh, they're actually a, a, a relatively small part of the economy. And the same holds true if you would look at the size of the sports industry in the aggregate economy, say, at, at the level of a nation. Uh, I've done some research on that and you know, concluded that, that sports really is not, it's not a big employer. Uh, it, it gets attention way outside of the, uh, of the actual economic activity that it represents. Mm-hmm. How many uh, other industries have an entire section of a daily newspaper devoted to them? None, right? Mm-hmm. But in, interestingly enough, I, there was a, a paper that was published maybe 15 years ago that concluded that the sport, sports industry was about the same size as the cardboard box industry. <laughs> that would be a pretty boring section of the paper, the cardboard box section. <laughs> it, it sure would. And not a lot of podcasts on cardboard boxes either. So. Yeah, so it's interesting the way, you know, sports sort of punches way above its weight, let's say, if, if we can use a, a sports metaphor, uh, in terms of the, the prominence relative of the, of the industry relative to the size of it. So thinking of sports punching, punching above its weight economically or, or in terms of, of uh, you know, the attention it takes in, in society and the culture, do you see anything like a – how to call it? Like a conspiracy that, you know, the, the owners of sports teams, the people who have an investment in sports are, say, cooking the books in terms of the economic benefits of sports. Oh, absolutely. That's been going on for decades. Uh, and the, the reason is that all over the world, governments have shown a, a tremendous willingness to subsidize the sports industry in all sorts of ways. And, and team owners, and not just team owners, I, I'm talking about uh, people like, the, uh, like FIFA and the International Olympic Committee, uh, they've just become accustomed to this idea that they can they can generate or get these huge subsidies from governments all over the world, and there's sort of a cottage industry I would call it that's been developed to uh, generate bogus evidence to support the idea that that all sorts of sporting events are worthy of public subsidization. So one corner of sports economics I want to ask about is gambling. And uh, you know, when lay people like myself talk about the economic side of sports, this is something uh, admittedly I overlook. But, but in looking at sports and in particular at European football, how, how significant is betting to the, the overall economic picture? Um, well, I would, I would certainly say that betting on sports is a, is a huge uh, economic endeavor. I was at a conference in Germany a few weeks ago, and a guy was giving a presentation about uh, betting on European football in Asia. And there is a huge amount, in China especially, there's a huge amount of interest in betting on professional football in Europe. And, for example, uh, uh, he had interviewed a, a bookmaker in China and talked to him, and he asked the guy, so how much betting action would it take, say, to move the odds on a football match in the third, uh, I'm sorry, the second division in Belgium. And he said, well, it would probably take somewhere on the order of 
300,000 euros worth of betting action to move the odds. And we're talking about, I was just shocked, right, because we're talking about second division Belgian football. The average football fan anywhere in the world probably couldn't name a player that would play on one of those sides. And is that a common occurrence then? I think it is. The, the betting market in Asia is huge. When there's a huge appetite for an interest in betting on football from, from Chinese. So related to gambling and sports, an, an issue that was discussed uh, just a few months ago on, on your blog, on the Sports Economist blog, is the problem of match, match fixing in European football. And that's kind of reemerged now. So is there, is there a danger that this is going to become a bigger problem? Um, well, match fixing is always going to be a problem where – uh, where salaries are low of, of people who can have uh, an impact on, on match outcomes, right? So there is, I mean, these, these two issues go hand in hand. Uh, there is so much betting going on and much of it coming from Asia, and they're betting on, on these not high-profile but low-profile sporting events and football matches in Europe, and there, that is going to uh, create a, a situation where match fixing can happen because, you know, third division referees in Croatia are paid very little. And and, and why people would want to bet on a third division match in Croatia, who knows, but they do. And those m- matches are fixable and the markets are there and, and that's, that is going to happen. But I don't think, you know, nobody's going to be able to, to uh, bribe a player, a star player from a side in the English Premier League to throw a match mm-hmm. because it's just the cost is much too high for those people. But, if, you know, if you're a marginal pro player in a low-level league in Europe somewhere and your salary is low or even more importantly, you're a referee, mm-hmm. uh, you can, you're susceptible to that. And the fact that some bookmakers in Asia are willing to make book on those sort of matches that you can't uh, – easily find out what's going on uh it's it's going to happen and again just let me go back to this conference i was at which was on football and finance in europe european football uh there was some discussion one of the papers was about some of the match fixing activities that takes place and and these crime syndicates are willing to do things like i mean there was a there was an international friendly between togo and some other country and they actually hired a team of ringers to go and show up the match wasn't scheduled but they got it on the fixture and hired a team of ringers to go up and and play as the togo national team and uh and in uh, the match it was fixed and then they only found out it was fixed when a few weeks later, some official from the real Togo national football team read about this match and, and reported that there was no such match scheduled to his knowledge. Hmm. <laughs> so it's a pretty, I mean, and, but that's, you know, why, can, why does that happen? Because there's this gigantic demand and market for betting on all sorts of football matches coming out of Europe. So, Brad, something else you've done research on are uh, countries hosting mega events like like the European Football Championship. And... Uh, so in, in your research, do you find that – do these events bring the economic benefits that the organizers envision and promise? I, I just want to say one thing first about, about that paper that I wrote on uh, the UEFA championship and its potential economic impact in Poland and the Ukraine. And that is – because when you're lucky, you've got, to, you've got to publicize the fact, right? So I actually wrote that paper before the UEFA championship was awarded to – Ukraine and Poland. 
So when that came out, I suddenly looked like I was very smart, and when I, I was really just very lucky, right? <laughs> but I got, I've got we're, to say we're, that. we're talking to you because you're very smart. Not <laughs> <laughs> well, I looked I looked much smarter than I really am when when <laughs> when that came out that I had already published a paper uh, about the economic impact of uh, of a sports mega event that hadn't even been awarded to the host that I wrote it about. So would you? So we'll give you a chance to update it. Would you? Uh, looking back on it. Uh, uh, do you see this as promising for, say, Ukraine and Poland in holding? Well, Eastern? potentially, and I, I, it's well. So what I wrote at the time, and let's go back to this this issue that you raised a couple of minutes ago about uh, about the we were talking about the subsidies that go to sport and the way that the people who are receiving those subsidies gin up a lot of evidence to uh, to support the idea that that we should. Uh, that we should subsidize sports in this way. So, mega events are 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 a big offender in this category um, because the the amount of subsidies it takes to put on something like the UEFA Championship is is just tremendous, right? Because UEFA and and the the organizing um, bodies put these huge requirements on stadium size and 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 the uh, the sort of uh, um, facilities that are there in terms of luxury boxes and and uh, covered seating and sizes and uh, and all those sort of things of these of these stadiums and the they force the potential hosts to bid against one another for the rights to host this thing and the way they bid is by offering to build more and more lavish facilities and um, then. They build them. They get a, they get the rights to host these events, and they build these things. And after they're over, after the three weeks of the tournament are over, they're left with these red herrings, which are just way, way too big for their domestic leagues. And the upkeep on them is more than it's really worth to uh, uh, keep them. So that's a real common outcome. When the UEFA Championship was in was in Portugal in the 90s, they did the same thing. They built all this all these huge new stadiums, and then they come to find out. Five years later, after the UEFA Championship's over, that they can't pay the upkeep on them, and they knocked a bunch of the stadiums down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but that why does that happen? It, it happens because UEFA is able to uh, to claim these benefits are going to happen and and make host countries bid on the rights to to hold these events and extract these these rents from them. So it's kind of a reprehensible process. Now in Poland and Ukraine, so what I said in this paper was well. Um, they were talking about doing a tremendous amount of infrastructure upgrades along with uh, the the hosting of the UEFA Championship. So they were talking about uh, increasing the capacity and quality of their public transport and train lines and things like that. And uh, to the extent that that really happens, that, that pays long-run dividends for the host country. Because, you know, if you can transport goods and services, including people, uh, more cheaply to more cities, that's going to go and pay you benefits in, in the form of you can have lower prices on, say, all sorts of consumer goods because they're cheaper to transport. So to the extent that really happens, then there will be some benefit, and I wrote this in the paper, there will be some benefit uh, to to Poland and Ukraine from hosting this. But on the other hand, they're also going to have these gigantic 
stadiums that are way too big for the domestic football leagues in either country. And the the update I have on what I wrote there is, uh, after writing that article, I was in touch with several journalists from the Ukraine, and the cost overruns have been tremendous on these stadiums that they built to host the UEFA Championship. So I'll ask Brad if you have a suggestion for a book you'd recommend on uh, the economics of football, economics of sport in general. Um, yeah, sure. So, so the book is is called National Pastime, and it's by two sports economists, Stefan Szymanski and Andrew Zimblist. And the subtitle is How Americans Play Baseball and the Rest of the World Plays Soccer. And it's a really interesting. Uh, uh, case study of the development of professional baseball in the U.S. and professional football in Europe at the same time, and, the, and why they developed the way that they did, and, and why it is that, that the U.S. doesn't play football and doesn't care about professional football very much, and the rest of the world doesn't care about baseball. All right. And so thinking back about uh, your conference that you were just at on, on football finance in Germany. So, so in our line of work in academics, we don't get asked about these conferences we attend. So, but I know you're likely excited when you come back about all you learned. So, so what was the one great thing coming back from that conference that you wish you, wish you could tell a podcast audience? Oh, there was, I saw a really interesting paper uh, that that uh, sort of hints at the possibility of some sort of money ball for football um, uh, story going on using there's all this new data on available on on how far and how fast football players run during a match because they actually have uh, GPS chips in their jerseys Wow and they are now coming up with a lot of data that could be analyzed about you know how uh, how much effort players put forth during football matches. And that really can lead to some, I think, very interesting research. And I thought that it was, you know, it was the first cut at, at somebody analyzing those data, but clearly they're looking at a relationship, but for a relationship between earnings and effort in terms of how far and how fast players run. So I thought that was just a tremendously interesting and, and potentially promising uh, uh, line of research. And I thought it was pretty cool. That was cool. Brad Humphrey's recommendation for your summer sports reading is National Pastime, How Americans Play Baseball and the Rest of the World Play Soccer by Stefan Shemansky and Andrew Zimbalist, published in 2006 by the Brookings Institution Press. Despite the cautions of economists, investors and corporations still pour money into European football. Billionaires from Russia, the Middle East, and the United States have purchased clubs, while companies spend tens of millions of pounds or euros to have their logos on the shirts of the top teams. What do these investors stand to gain from their spending? To find out, I spoke with Simon Chadwick, professor in the business school at Coventry University and director of the University's Center for the International Business of Sport. Simon's articles have appeared in academic journals and business magazines in Europe and America, and he is the editor of a number of key books in the field, most recently, The Business of Sport Management. I began by asking him to imagine the wild scenario that I was an international billionaire looking to invest in a European soccer club. What advice would Simon offer me? Uh, I, I think the, the the first 
the first question you have to ask yourself is why why would you want to do it um because i think in general terms uh if if you're looking to realize a financial return in a relatively short period of time it's extremely unlikely that you're going to do that by investing in a european football club um european football clubs are notoriously badly run uh financially they they perform notoriously badly uh culturally uh, many of them still exist not just in the 20th century but in many cases in the 19th century and so they're they're very difficult businesses to or very difficult difficult organizations to run uh they're very difficult difficult organizations to manage uh and they're, they're very difficult uh, organizations to make money from hence you have to ask the question why why would you want to buy one if you're a businessman and you like football or you like a particular club, um, it's your hobby, then fine, buy a club. And uh, certainly there are lots of examples uh, across Europe of, of, of particularly men who buy football clubs because it's their hobby. If you, you want to, to buy into a club or get involved in a club in some way for political reasons, um, again, there are precedents there. And when I talk about political reasons, it could be, uh, political in terms of local politics uh, it could be political too in terms of national politics uh, and if we look at the, the case of Berlusconi in uh, in Italy with AC Milan um, clearly his involvement in football served him very well in, in terms of the, the extent to which he, he grew his political influence but I think uh, also political in, in the way that um, by being uh, a football club owner it gives you a prominent position uh, locally, nationally, internationally, and this this enables you to to, to foster and build relationships. Uh, and while clearly some of those relationships might be political, very often they're also commercial too. So it's a good way of getting to know business people. It's a good way of of establishing what the English would call good favour with others. Um, it's it's a good way of, of creating business networks. If we're going to take a, a more hard nosed and commercial perspective of of this. Uh, as, as, as I've already said, uh, football clubs perform notoriously badly financially. So the management model in European football is more laissez-faire, allowing high-spending teams to dominate, as opposed to the American model of professional sports management, where there are um, instruments uh, set up by the league aimed at establishing greater equality among teams. Do you see the European model as being altered any time in the future, moving more toward this uh, this ironically more controlled American model. It's uh, it's it's it is interesting that you mention this because obviously you have America, which is the the biggest capitalist economy in the world, and and you run your sport like communists. <laughs> uh, whereas in Europe we have we have uh, much more socially democratic uh, economies with with large scale state intervention, uh, and yet we run our football like capitalists. Um, so it, it is it is one of uh, sports great ironies I think that that we have this this kind of uh, this kind of contradiction between the, between the two. Um, it's interesting because I think clearly what what happened is is with American sport American sport really was was organized on a much more strategic and commercial basis so in other words what you did is you constructed your sport in a way that would reflect the principles of uncertainty of outcome and and, uh, and competitive balance European sport developed in a completely different way and certainly football is a is probably the best example of this 
and and the way in which it developed was on a much more socio-cultural basis so essentially it was a hobby um and and out of this hobby it became a, a leisure time pursuit and so the growth rather than being strategic or planned was much more organic and unplanned and so we're now in a situation whereby um the basis for the sport is much more socio-cultural rather than being commercial or strategic and I think what reinforces this uh, this position is is European Union law, because under European Union law we have the principle of freedom of movement. So in other words, there there can be no impediment, there can be no uh, uh, barrier to to movement. So. Um, for instance, with a player, if, 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 if a player wants to, to move from one team to another, there's no mechanism necessarily to stop that happening because just as a university lecturer can quite easily move from one university to another, European Union law reflects that same principle. So a player can move from one to another. That means, therefore, it's very difficult to implement, for instance, a draft. We, we simply don't have a draft. Uh, if you look at salary regulation, my salary isn't regulated uh, as a university lecturer. Uh, the manager of uh, Virgin, the manager of Marks and Spencers, the, the manager of, 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 uh, of, of Buckingham Palace, you know, their wages are not regulated. So the same principles apply to players. Their wages are therefore not regulated under the law. So what essentially we have in Europe is a situation uh, whereby sociocultural, unregulated sociocultural forces uh, led to the, constitu the, the constitution of the sport in a very distinct sociocultural way, which is very different to the United States. And what is now happening is the European Union and its legislative framework is inadvertently reinforcing that position. So many of the things that you do in, uh, in, in the United States, like maximum wage, we can't have. We, we just can't do that. It's illegal. Uh, whereas if you look at things like franchise location, because of the socio-cultural socio roots of, of, of football in, in, in Europe, you simply can't up sticks. You, you can't take a club and take it elsewhere because society, socio-cultural forces uh, prevent against that. I think the, uh, this has led to, to problems. It's led to, to fairly serious financial problems for, for many clubs. It's led to problems of uncertainty of outcome. It's led to problems of competitive balance. And UEFA is now beginning to wake up to this uh, and is about to or has just introduced something called the Financial Fair Play Initiative. And this is a, a set of measures which UEFA is enforcing on all UEFA members. And there are 53 uh, European member associations of UEFA, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Germany, Ukraine, Russia, Poland, Hungary and, and so forth. Um, and what this is, is a set of financial measures intended to moderate club finances. In other words, it's intended to try and get clubs to, to, to think and behave in a more responsible fashion, uh, to, um, to spend wisely and to think about how they generate revenue. Uh, and there is some evidence already that, th that this might be starting to have an impact. Um, transfer activity, fo player, football player transfer activity uh, seems to have, have, have uh, subsided uh, to an extent. We, we had a, a transfer period in January uh, when spending was very low. And, and I think clubs are, are increasingly cautious and, and are taking this measure uh, seriously. The problem with this, of course, is, is that UEFA's measures are um, essentially uh, against the principles of, of, of freedom. 
Um, so in other words, the supermarket industry, the retail industry is not regulated in this way. The chemical industry is not regulated in this way. The electronics industry is not regulated in this way. And I think all it would take is for one or two dissatisfied clubs to take this, uh, to take UEFA to the European Union Court of Justice. Um, and it may well be that, that, that this particular initiative could fall apart. But that's something that will play out over the next five years or so as we, we get into this initiative. But as I say already, there is evidence to suggest that there is some moderation of activity taking place. So you had mentioned the the large European clubs as global brands earlier. And uh, so looking ahead to the the Euro 2012 tournament, obviously there's this difference between uh, a club and a national side. In looking at the the different football associations in Europe, uh, do you see any of the associations as being... Uh, alert to the brand value of their national side and then working to promote that that brand in the same way that the owner of a club works to promote the brand of his club? I'm in the, uh, the very fortunate position in that I, I, uh, I teach uh, on, a, on a UEFA professional development program. And this professional development program is is delivered to all 53 member associations. So I routinely meet with uh, uh, with officials from each of the 53 member associations, and I think it's fair to say that the the the, the diversity of experience uh, across those associations is is dramatic, um, and certainly some of the smaller associations. Uh, are struggling to even get a, a person allocated to, to looking after marketing, full stop. Mm-hmm. So th- there's no sense at all of branding the national team or en- engaging in activities intended to build the brand in any way. Whereas you come to some of the bigger associations and, and, and the kind of associations that, that stick out are Spain, England, uh, Italy, Germany. Increasingly, there is a sense of, of not only of, of, of branding and, and what branding is, what it entails, how you build a brand, how you create equity within a brand, but also um, how you how you engage fans uh, how you retain those fans to create a, 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 some lifetime value from these fans through a series of initiatives. Um, there seems to be a, a particular strength in, in certain associations um, in building, I guess, what we might call supporters clubs. So kind of building families or be, be building congregations uh, whereby people get preferential access to tickets. They, they get special travel packages. Um, there are newsletters, magazines, meetings. Uh, and all of this is based around, obviously, fraternity and identity and, and kind of cheering on for the national cause. But as I say, I, I think uh, it, it's quite shocking how little uh, many of the, the associations out there actually know about branding and, and what it is and why it's important. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let me ask you, uh, do you have a, a favorite book that you'd recommend, either on the business of football or football in general? There, there, there are kind of three books that I would uh, that I would point out. Uh, one is called Managing Football in an International Perspective, uh, which, which I put together with a colleague of mine from the University of London, Sean Hamill. Um, and, and what we do is we, we do take a very international perspective. It's, it's not just a, a European perspective. We have, have chapters in there on North American soccer, on, on football in China, in Japan, and, and so on. Um, a kind of a half business, half pleasure book uh, is a, a book called, uh, I think in the United States, you call it Soccer Soconomics. Mm-hmm. 
which is is based upon the the, the whole free economics phenomenon, which uh, essentially takes lots of statistical data and tries to prove and disprove certain things using this data. Um, written by two very clever people, uh, Stefan Shemansky and uh, uh, Simon Cooper. Um, I, I, I like reading it, although they're, they're, it's not without its critics, but still I think it's a very good book to read. The other book I would point out, and, and if you've got about six years of your life to set aside to read this, is uh, a book called The Ball is Round uh, by David Goldblatt, and, and this is a, a global history of football. Um, when you finish reading it, you can uh, you can hold open a door with it. It's it's that large. It's a, it's a big book, but... It's a, it's a very uh, a very rewarding read. Certainly, if you if you know very little about the history, the socio cultural aspects of uh, of, uh, of football, it will it, it takes you through again not just English European soccer but soccer across the world and, and looks at its social, political, cultural, uh, legal, economic, commercial uh, importance. And when you're done, if you if you need to reach something on a high shelf, it's also usable as a step ladder well, for short guys like me i, I always take it to meetings so if my uh, if i if i can't reach up to the desk i just sit on it and uh, i can see over the desk simon's recommendations of books on soccer business and economics are david goldblatt's history of world football titled the ball is round published in 2007 by penguin the book of stefan shemansky and simon cooper is soccernomics which is just out from Harper Sport in a new updated edition. And the book that Simon himself edited, along with Sean Hamill, is Managing Football, an International Perspective, published in 2009 by Taylor and Francis. One of the challenges facing the owners and managers of European clubs is the turbulent market for players. Since the Bosman ruling of 1995, the pool of footballers in Europe has swelled with players from outside the continent. Players move from team to team and from league to league, with salaries skyrocketing at the top levels. But at the same time, in the lower leagues, players scrape to earn a decent wage, while clubs, even in wealthy West European nations, struggle to make their payments. Since 2005, the CIES Football Observatory in Switzerland has been tracking and analyzing the football labor market in Europe, looking at where players come from, where they go, and the conditions they encounter. The director of the observatory, Raffaele Poli, spoke to me about the current demographic picture of European soccer. To begin, I asked him which national leagues in Europe feature the most foreign players. So uh, in terms of internationalization, England and the English Premier League is uh, up to now the most uh, international one, at least uh, among the big five leagues. Then we have a specific case, which is quite surprising, is Cyprus. We have almost three quarters of players in, in Cyprus that come from abroad. And then in England, we have in the Premier League about 56% is the second highest percentage. And in Cyprus, it's still on the increase, while in England, it has a bit decreased in the, in the last years. Then you have some other countries with a majority of uh, foreign players. Uh, and now we have uh, Portugal with a lot of Brazilians, of course. Uh, and then also um, Russia more and more. 
Belgium, uh, which is traditionally has been quite open to, to foreign imports, and also Greece, but also in Greece uh, there was a, a decrease in, uh, recently. So something that was interesting in the observatory's most recent uh, demographic report is that while Brazil still has the most expatriate players in European leagues, the number of, of Brazilians uh, has dropped. So what patterns did you see in the most recent demographic study in terms of the country of origins of expatriate players? Yeah, you're right. Brazilians are by far the most represented uh, nationality in the in Europe. We did this study. We looked at more than 12,000 players uh, in 33 top division leagues in Europe. So it's a quite uh, global vision of uh, the European the, the, the state at European level. And Brazil has uh, twice as much players uh, abroad in these leagues, followed then by. French players, uh, then Argentinians and Serbian ones at fourth place. And you are right, also Brazilians are uh, decreasing. And uh, this is uh, this was not the case until 2008 uh, and 2009. Uh, until then, the, the number of Brazilians was still on the increase. They were already the, the, the first provider of uh, foreign players for European football, but it was still increasing their number. And after that, uh, is is dropping and. Uh, uh, I think this is related uh, first to the economic development of the country and the, the, the local leagues. We did also a global study in 2010 and uh, we looked at, uh, at the return migration of, uh, of Brazilian players, which is uh, quite impressive. And at the same time, probably also uh, there, is, uh, there were so many Brazilians that it's hard also to find very good talents beyond, beyond those who uh, were already abroad. So you see mostly now, at least in, in this past year's report, uh, movement of players from Southern Europe and from Eastern Europe. You had mentioned that Serbia is now the uh, produces the third most expatriate players in Europe. Yeah, because there is a, always an Eastern European market and the Serbians are very numerous in many uh, former Soviet countries such as Bulgaria, even Poland, Hungary. These countries, uh, in many of these countries, the Serbians are uh, almost uh, as numerous as the Brazilians, if not more. And uh, this is explained by historical reasons, also the proximity, geographical proximity uh, to some extent, uh, but also by the fact that traditionally the Serbians uh, and the former Yugoslavia more, more generally have been uh, quite uh, numerous abroad since the 30s. The first foreign players in European football were already uh, the Yugoslavians. And this, is, uh, this has uh, resulted in a, in a, in a development of a, of a good training system in these countries. And of course, uh, local clubs do not have the means to keep uh, their best players, so they easily uh, try their, their chance abroad. And uh, also it's interesting to see that most of uh, the first uh, Europeans uh, that migrated uh, to other continents, the Middle East, uh, Far Far East Asia, or also Latin America, were the Serbians. So from a, a, a European perspective, the, the global workforce are the Serbians. And of course, uh, now, uh, from a world perspective, are the Brazilians. 
So we typically look at the life of a professional football player as, as glamorous, and they're paid a lot of money, they move from country to country, but the life of an expatriate footballer can also be isolating and confusing as they're, they're constantly being uprooted from, from club to club and country to country. So do you see European clubs making progress in terms of, of helping their, their foreign players in the process of acclimating to a new environment? I think probably in the, the very top flight of European club, uh, football, uh, yes, probably they are more aware also considering the, the amount of money they spent in transfer fees, that uh, acclimatization is a very important aspect also for them to provide and to perform at their best. Then uh, I think uh, when you go down uh, in, in the lower level of European football, there is uh, still a lot to do. I'm based in Switzerland. We did uh, and I did uh, quite a lot of interviews with African players here in Switzerland, and uh, of course uh, some of them uh, do not speak German, for example, and uh, they struggled really to adapt to the new environment. And as you mentioned, uh, especially for the Africans. Behind their transfer, there are also speculative strategies by the clubs or their, their agents also. Uh, and these make things even more difficult for these players, uh, even though they know that they are not uh, in Switzerland to remain in Switzerland for long. But still, in their daily life, uh, life uh, it's sometimes difficult to uh, to live in a situation where you don't know if you can really have a contract the year after where and for the Africans uh, their regular status in Switzerland or in other European countries is also related to the the, the fact uh, that the holding of uh, of a regular work permit and if they lose the job they risk to find themselves in very uh, precarious situations. So in researching European football as a labor market, you've looked not only at the movement of labor, as, as we've been talking about, but also at the employment of this labor and, and the pay that professional footballers receive. And, and contrary to the typical view of footballers as, as rich, as moving from country to country, you found that there are, are great disparities in terms of pay as well as a great amount of volatility in the labor market. Yeah, this is a, is a specific feature of the football uh, economy and the labor market economy of football is that uh, there are, of course, uh, leagues that can and clubs that can afford to pay uh, very high salaries, but uh, is a pyramidal structure. At the bottom of the pyramid, you have plenty of clubs that uh, whether they have not the means uh, to pay good salaries or uh, perhaps sometimes they promise to pay good salaries, but in the end they do not pay. So there is also a reality of, uh, of um, difficulties for players to, to get their money. And this also was raised by the, the, play, the World Player Union and uh, in relationship with the problem of, uh, of match fixing, because uh, you can find many leagues, uh, especially in Eastern Europe or bottom level uh, at, uh, in Western European countries too, where players uh, do not earn a lot 
lot and they don't even receive the money they should receive. And this, of course, uh, results uh, quite often in match fixing and other corruption scandals because, of course, these players are not well paid or not paid at all. And they have sometimes a family uh, uh, and, uh, and they must uh, finally find other solutions uh, to, um, to, uh, to earn some, some money. And this isn't necessarily a problem of uh, an East European football problem. You see this throughout the continent, correct? The fifth pro, uh, so the player union study, was specifically uh, related to Eastern Europe. Uh, but uh, you can find uh, the same situation in lower level of Italian football, for example. There are many clubs going bankrupt every year, uh, even in Switzerland, uh, which is a rich economy, but from a football perspective, it's not like that. Of course, there are some clubs that pay good money also in Switzerland, but the majority do not pay a lot. And uh, as I said, they, they, uh, they are perhaps not always uh, run and managed correctly. And uh, they, promise, they promise money that they don't uh, give at the end. And these are also quite common, uh, not only in Europe, but also outside Europe, in South America and Africa and so on. The movement of players into and around Europe connects to one of the key questions of contemporary politics, society and culture. What are the limits to Europeanness? As migrants come from outside of Europe or move from poorer to more wealthy countries within Europe, are they integrated into communities or excluded? And is it possible for football, as something that is increasingly transnational, to generate a sense of inclusive European identity, not only within the EU, but across the continent? David Ronk has looked into these questions in his research as a political scientist. He teaches in the Department of International Studies at the ESCA School of Management in Angers, France. And he is the manager of a new collaborative project called Football Research in an Enlarged Europe, which links researchers in eight different countries. I asked David, based on his research, to explain the extent to which football supporters see themselves as part of a larger Europe. Well, in my own research, I have studied football supporters who are club supporters, as opposed to national team supporters. My original question was around the acceptance or not of uh, foreigners who come from Europe. So uh, what has appeared very clearly is that in many ways, foreigners are largely accepted by uh, football supporters. Also, what has also emerged, and that's through uh, collaborative research with um, other people like Albrecht Zontag or Paul Dietschy, is that just following football competitions, European football competition has created for people um, a mental image of Europe. It makes sense to be European also because uh, your team competes uh, against uh, another club in a European competition. So you said that in general, uh, fans are supportive of foreign players who come in. And you did case studies. You looked at the old firm clubs in Glasgow, uh, Paris Saint-Germain and, uh, and Arsenal. Did you find any variations from, from region to region, or was the pattern uh, uniform across France, England, and Scotland? The, the pattern wasn't very different. Um, in Scotland, the idea of the other was more the... Um, 
uh, other who is uh, of another religion, Catholic versus Protestant, rather than um, the other who is a foreigner. But the idea was still the same, uh, in the sense that um, Catholics is a byword in Scotland to mean uh, people from Irish origin. So in Scotland, the pattern is a bit different because there is a long tradition of uh, opposition between uh, so-called Catholics, meaning uh, Irish people or people of Irish descent, and so-called Protestant, meaning mostly people who are Scottish or uh, a, a few coming from other bits of um, the UK. Um, and uh, this long-standing opposition means that there is apparently um, a reluctance to accept uh, foreigners or people who are others in their team. However, um, Glasgow Rangers had a policy of not having a, a single Catholic player until 1989. And what has appeared clearly is that the uh, presence of uh, Catholic players in uh, Rangers has not decreased the level of support, and that the um, Glasgow Rangers supporters can identify with Catholic players, whether they are of Irish origin or if they come from another origin from another European country, basically. So the pattern is pretty similar. As long as the uh, player plays for the team, then um, the uh, player is accepted. Uh, there can be some uh, difficulties to accept him at the beginning, but it really disappears very quickly. So I'll ask about, I did see a title of one of your articles, the, the UEFAization of, of French football. So uh, uh, what is it that you were looking at in, in that particular article? What the book looks at is whether um, national leagues, and to a lesser extent national football teams, but national leagues, have been affected by Europe. The first thing that the uh, editors thought about was uh, Europeanization in its widest sense, and also what people in political science called EUization, uh, which means um, things are made more EU-like rather than European-like. Often Europe is a shorthand for EU, but people want to distinguish. What uh, the article has shown is that if um, anything has contributed to changing the face of the National League in France, it is uh, UEFA uh, regulation, or to be uh, more precise, UEFA competitions. Uh, the only bit of EU regulation that has really affected countries is the Bosman ruling, in the sense that it has allowed uh, football players to be transferred for free, even at the end of their contract. But that is something that was already happening in France, so it didn't change anything in France. Uh, and the second thing is the number of foreign players, which um, was not limited anymore, as long as these players hail from the EU, uh, because, of course, EU citizens cannot be considered as foreigners uh, within the EU. But to a large extent, this is a movement that had already been anticipated in France. There was a restriction on the number of players, of foreign players, but it was very uh, small, and the league was already extremely open. Um, I can't give you percentages, but I think one out of four football players already came from abroad. So in that respect, there was no EUization because um, the EU had uh, regulation had little impact. On the other hand, uh, the need to compete with uh, other clubs and to a certain extent to national team, uh, to compete with national teams, uh, has prompted the National League and the National Football Association, the Fédération Française de Football, 
to um, change the way they behaved, the way they were organized, um, you know, to be more competitive. Um, that, that, that's the idea. The UEFA competitions have driven French clubs and the French League, the Ligue du Football Professionnel, to, to uh, become uh, more European. The identities of football supporters is a subject we've discussed on a previous episode of New Books and Sports. A few months back, sociologist Peter Millward was a guest on the program, talking about the research he had done into communities of Liverpool and Manchester United fans. At that time, Pete also spoke about his own perspective of the English Premier League as a longtime supporter of the club Wigan Athletic. One of Pete's other research interests goes in a similar direction as that of David Ronk. Do supporters of local clubs or national teams gain an understanding of themselves as part of Europe, as being European, from their experience as football fans? I wanted to bring Pete back to the podcast to ask about the work he has done. But first, I had to congratulate him on Wigan's late-season successes in defeating two of the Giants of the Premier League. Well, we're becoming the Giants, aren't we? <laughs> two, vi- two victories in a week. Superb stuff. So you must just be in a, in a euphoria. Do you find it hard to teach and grade papers and things like that? Or? <laughs> Maybe the grades have become a bit more generous. I don't know. <laughs> it's been No, it's been a great week. We've beaten, in the last week, we beat Manchester United at home. It's the first time we've ever... We've ever beaten Manchester United. We'd never drawn with them before even, so that that's good. And then um, earlier this week, we went to Arsenal and won, which was great as well. It's a good time. All right, so I want to ask, Pete, about, about fan loyalty and fan identity, two subjects that you do research on, and, uh, and how that changes when you go from supporting your club, Wigan Athletic, and then supporting your national side in an international tournament. And this is, this is a question that really comes from American ignorance. You know, here in the States, the one sport that most stirs fan loyalty, namely American football, ha- has no international competition. But, but in your case, this summer you are going to watch players on the England side whom you jeer and root against and perhaps yeah. even loathe when they play against Wigan. So so how does that work, the, the tension between your club loyalty and then watching players you detest play for your national team? I mean, it's quite, it's quite difficult, actually. Um, I mean, I think when the tournament starts... I keep an eye out for England, but I don't think I really support the English national team. Um, and then the media whips up a... If England do okay, if England win a game or two, um, the media whips up a frenzy, and it becomes quite exciting, and you find yourself slowly beginning to follow the team. But it's, I don't think I'm alone in this. I mean, I think I think um, there are lots and lots of English fans of English football clubs who don't particularly follow the English national team. So would that be by club in in looking at the the roster for the for the English national team it's it's represented typically by by players from Manchester United yeah uh, Manchester City Arsenal Chelsea the the major clubs so so for yeah. fans of teams whether Sunderland or Wigan or uh what have you would these be the people who uh, really don't have a lot a lot at stake in in watching the national team 
I do wonder. Well, I I wonder if the if the people who really do support the English national team are those fans of clubs well down the divisions. So not in the Premier League, maybe not even in the Championship, in League One, in League Two, where where the chance to go abroad and watch England becomes their their chance of following a team on the big world stage. Um, I mean, I know that the Manchester United fans have. I don't know whether you're aware of this, but there's a big banner that stretches out across the Stratford end, at the, the end of Manchester United's Old Trafford ground, where lots of the traditional fans go, which says Manchester United, and then the mathematical sign for greater than. And then it says England. <laughs> the Liverpool, similarly, the Liverpool fans chant, we're not English, we are Scouse. Scouse is the term for people from Liverpool. They call themselves um, and then when you watch the English national team, and keep an eye out for this this, this summer and during the Euros, you'll find lots of lots of um, St George's flags, lots of Union Jacks, which will have places like Grimsby written across the middle. You know, teams which have or towns and cities which have smaller football clubs that aren't in the top division. So moving from club and national loyalty to to broader transnational identities. You've you've also done research on on football and European integration. Do yeah. do competitions like the Euro Championship and the Champions League do they do they foster a sense of Europeanness among football fans? Do you think? I don't think the European Championships do. The European Championships bring out a chance to really uh, look at and experience the other, which makes which makes people actually feel more English and whether that's expressed therefore in overtly exclusionary exclusionary ways so um, so to act xenophobically for instance or whether it's more just a, a celebration of we are English is, is, is entirely up for debate I think the the club competitions potentially can make people feel just the same as, as, as the European Championships but also, the club competitions happen more frequently. They're every season. The fans go abroad. The fans enjoy their experiences. They, f they reflect on those experiences and they tell stories based around those. And th that storytelling and reflection potentially makes people feel more European, at least on one level. So it's a complex picture. It really, if we think about Europeanness as having some sort of dimension of identity or collective identity here, the way in which people talk about themselves and talk about others helps them gain some sort of sense of their identity and if a group of supporters go across follow their team across Europe experience experiences from other European countries bring those experiences back and reflect upon them it has some sort of sense on how they define themselves and how they talk about themselves in the European frame, that could potentially make them more European. So, thinking about the the, the national loyalties people have to their to their side, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of so many rivalries. When you can think of the England Germany rivalry, or how many of them are rooted in, uh, namely, memory of the war, but yeah. older nationalistic antagonism. So. So getting back to this question of, of European integration, I, and I think you leaned toward the answer earlier, does something like the Euro Championship uh, really just allow for a stage for those older animosities to be voiced again? Yes, 
or at least on an initial level through the media. I mean, the most of, you know, okay, the war is popularly remembered, but remembered through the media rather than lived experience. Um, the older animosities are sometimes remembered, but, but often those fans who are engaged in these sorts of chants and these sort of demonstrations against the other, Germany, don't know too much about this. You know, it's what the media tells them about. And the media have this. Ultimately, the media want to sell units, whether it be newspapers, whether it be programs on television, on the radio, wherever. They want to sell units. And they sell units by making those who might buy those units feel good about themselves. And one way in which they, make they can make people feel good about themselves is by telling positive stories about a past they can positively identify with and also negative stories about the others in, in conjunction with that. Mm -hmm. So the media stirs, stirs this up. So do you have, uh, Pete, do you have a, a favorite football book, whether, whether old or new, scholarly, not scholarly, that you'd recommend to us? May I cheat and offer two? Yes, you may. Okay. Well, I'm currently just reading a book around um, a non-academic book by Paul Hodgson and Stephen North on Brighton and Hove Albion. So they're a championship club in England, one below the Premier League. And they had a really interesting fight whereby, um, fight in the me metaphorical sense, whereby the club was moved away from, from the city of Brighton, moved 70 miles away which might chime with some of the ideas from American sport. And the fans mobilized and sought to bring the club back to, to their city. And that happened. And I'm really enjoying this book by Hodgson and North called We Want Falmer around this, around, around this move back to the stadium uh, on the edge of Brighton in Falmer. I'm really enjoying that. So that's my non-academic selection. My academic selection absolutely chimes with lots of what we said about fans and their European experiences and, um, I couldn't not include this. So it's a book by a sociologist called Anthony King called The European Ritual, which is an ethnographic piece of work which looks at Manchester United fans on European travels. It's an excellent book. So when it comes down to it, if, if England is in the, the final match, playing for the championship at the tournament, and it comes down to penalty kicks, and it comes down to, <laughs> to your most despised player, John Terry, lining up to take the kick, what what are you going to want him to do? Miss or make it? Um, miss, miss. I think <laughs> club loyalties always come into this. Pete Millward's suggested football books are: We Want Falmer, How Brighton and Hove Albion Football Club and its fans united to build a stadium, written by Steve North and Paul Hodson, and released by Stripe Publishing in 2011. And Anthony King's study of Manchester United fans is titled The European Ritual, Football in the New Europe, published in 2003 by Ashgate. One telltale marker of a loyal supporter is a proudly worn team jersey. But more than an indicator of fan identity, the football shirt can be an object of profound craving and scrutiny to fans. In their changing designs and colors, with third shirts and retro jerseys available, football kits are items to be hunted and cherished, much more so than the jerseys of other professional sports. 
There are several online sites devoted to the history and design of soccer shirts. Two sites worth the attention of the kit aficionado are footballshirtculture.com and designfootball.com, where fans offer their own designs for club uniforms. I spoke with Jay, one of the editors and regular contributors to both sites, to get an expert evaluation of the new designs of the national team jerseys for the upcoming Euro tournament. But first, we discuss the most pressing matter. What is the one football shirt that Jay most cherishes and admires? Um, the, the one shirt that I personally um, most cherish and admire is the, the 2007 to 2008 season uh, Olympique de Marseille third shirt. Um, it's a, an orange shirt which was released uh, as a tribute to uh, a Marseille supporters group. And it was a nice design. It was an Adidas design. Uh, but the colours worked really well and it was, it was a nice gesture as well to pay tribute to the supporters group. So do you own that shirt then? I do, yeah. I've do, got do got it. It's a little bit too tight for me now, though. I've put on a little bit of weight since I bought it, which is a shame because they're very hard to get hold of. But, yeah. yeah, that's still the one. So how much revenue is generated for, for clubs and apparel companies by uh, by shirts? Um, well, it's, there's estimates. It's very difficult to calculate. The, the thinking is that the, the top European clubs from the, the top leagues uh, – generate around about 250 to 350 million pounds a year um, from from shirt sales uh, but there's overlap from other merchandise sales as well so it's very difficult to pinpoint uh, the biggest clubs say the Manchester United can can make about 1.5 to sorry 1 million to 1.5 million a year um, but then that will drop as you get past the Liverpools, the Real Madrids, the Barcelonas, that will drop significantly. So a, a sort of mid-table British team would would probably bring in a hundred thousand hundred thousand shirts they'd sell. So then that would that would multiply up. But yeah, in terms of units, you you're looking at one point five million units for the for the top top teams the very top teams, and then, then it drops uh, considerably after that. Mm-hmm. So how many units would, uh, thinking of the new national team uh, yeah. shirts that are coming out this summer, so so how many units would they be looking to sell for those, for instance? Um, England will, will sell a, a large amount, so um, they're probably looking at around the between four, half a million and a million, I would have thought, somewhere around that amount. Um smaller countries much 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 less so say the ukraine maybe 100 to 200,000 something like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and of course there's a lively market in in unofficial football shirts and uh, do you have a sense of how large this is in terms of i don't know if you'd call it the illicit trade in in football yeah. shirts it's it's significant and it's something that scares the major manufacturers and the major clubs um and federations around the world that obviously it's not something where where there's any published figures of how many sales are actually made uh, but we see a lot of examples it's particularly strong in the far east so um, the asian market is huge for counterfeit products simply because people would rather pay a, a cheaper price for a lot of the shirts and and the if you reduce the quality, then it's going to be cheaper. If you reduce the the conditions of the workforce as well that put these shirts into production, it's it's going to be um, cheaper to sell as well. So uh, 
I mean, one one very stark example. There's what on the site that that I um, that I run, designfootball.com. Uh, a shirt was put up there. It's a it's a forum for fantasy shirts, so it's, it acts as a gallery for people, amateur designers, to put their their shirts on there. And um, one one design was put on there. A, a Liverpool kit was put on there uh, about a year ago, and immediately it was it was made up in the Far East. And it was being touted as the new shirt for Liverpool. Um, and Liverpool toured the Far East last summer. And you actually saw crowd shots where this shirt was being worn. And it was obviously being bought as an alternative to the real the real shirt. And that's that's a quite stark example because that's the one time you'd be able to see that someone has actually chosen a, a counterfeit shirt ahead of actually the, the official product. Mm. Um, often people go on holiday to the Far East and they'll say everyone's wearing a shirt, uh, a football shirt, but they, they don't look quite right. There's something wrong with them and that will be the, the counterfeit shirt. So they are very, very popular over there. So let's turn to the upcoming uh, Euro tournament. In in recent weeks, the uh, the kit designs for the different clubs, or I should say the different national sides, have been unveiled. And uh, I'll ask for your expert review. So can you tell us what, what are, say, the top three kits from, and from a design standpoint, why are these designs particularly successful? Okay, well, the one one interesting one is the, the Poland kits. Um, they're, they're quite simple. They're Nike kits. Uh, they've got uh, a panel across the chest, which is quite a popular thing at the minute the, to have a, a stripe running horizontally across the chest. Um, the Athletic Bill Bow is, a, is quite a big shirt at the minute, which has that sort of approach. Uh, Chelsea Third shirt has that approach as well. So this is this is the um, the design feature of the time, really. Uh, with the Poland shirt, uh, initial designs actually left off their traditional crest. And there was some kind of uproar from the Polish fans, and they added it on later. So they re-released the shirt and added on the the new crest, which which is quite. I'm not sure whether it was actually really an oversight from Nike, whether it was a, a marketing masterstroke, something along those lines. But it was it got them in the news, and um, it's, it's turned out to be quite a nice shirt as a result. So that's sort of a nine out of ten shirt. I would have thought it's it's quite a nice one. Uh, all of the shirts are pretty pretty nice in that tournament um they're not of the standards that you used to see in the in the 90s and two and early 2000s where um the the quality wasn't there they were they were very hit and miss but for this tournament they're they're all pretty good even the the worst shirts are sort of still a six out of ten seven out of ten shirt really Mm -hmm. other nice ones the the germany away shirt uh that one harks back to the 80s so it's a, a green shirt, very, very classic design, Adidas, with the three stripes down the sleeves. That's That one's going to be pretty popular, I think, uh, globally. Um, Croatia as well. Their away shirts are always blue uh, with an element of their their red and white checkerboard flag. So this time it's it's a plain blue shirt and there's just a, a triangle on the on the shoulder that shows the flag. So that one's... That one's probably going to be quite popular as well. And one that's quite nice but also quite controversial is the France kit. Um, France tend to wear their flag uh, turn 90 degrees. So uh, blue shirt, white shorts and red socks. Uh, this particular kit is all blue and it doesn't feature any white or any red. So that one um, may not 
be um, popular with the purists, but it is it is a very nice shirt, very classic design, blue with uh, gold details. So that one will probably sell quite well as well. Um, on on the flip side, there are some that that are not of the same standard. Um, England is a little bit of a disappointment. Um, always going to sell well simply because of what it is. So many. So many people are absolutely passionate about football in this country, so it will sell. But they've they've taken the crest, which is the main issue with it, and they've removed all the colour from it and just replaced it with red. So there was a campaign 15 years ago, I think, uh, to get England wearing the colours of the flag, which is uh, white with the red. And finally, England have done that, but it's... Uh, it's a little bit of a pity that they've got rid of the the crest that the the tailored by Umbro range really improved the crest, made it beautifully embroidered, beautiful colours in it, and they've dispensed with that now and just had a, a plain red crest, which is is disappointing to me. But we'll see what other fans think of it. Um, the another one which is another nice design is the Ireland kit. Um, that one very simple design looks look it will look great on the on the pitch on all the players but the pity with that one is that their replica shirts are sold with the sponsor the um federation sponsor which is uh three which is a mobile or cell phone company uh so it's a big number three on the front of the shirt so unless you're a left back it's not the it's, it's not the best replica shirt to wear, so that one's a shame. And and Russia, that was a little bit disappointing. They they moved to Adidas in two thousand and nine, and in in three years with Adidas, they've had uh, I think these will be the seventh and eighth kits if you include home and away, and they're the worst ones they've had. So they've had a lot of kits, and they've all been great really, but these are the worst ones. Um, there's it's quite a generic design fits in with the the adidas catalog quite well but quite generic not specific to russia and it's it has a a sash thought it's kind of thrown on as an afterthought which is a bit of a pity uh they could have had something as it's the first time that they'll be uh, in a tournament with an adidas kit since this deal started they could have worn something a little bit better but uh that's what they've gone with but generally speaking the kits are quite nice for euro 2012 not not as bad as as previous tournaments so, Jay, since this is a podcast about sports books, I'll ask you if you have a, a recommendation of a favorite book, whether on whether on football shirts or football in general. Yeah, I mean the the best books on on football shirts, the the True Colors books by John Devlin. If you're particularly interested in football shirts, they're the ones to own. They're they're based on they're based around English clubs who were in and around the the top flight. Uh, so the Premier League around mid mid two thousands. So it's got the home kits, the away kits, the third kits. Beautiful renditions of these kits. Uh, and there's two volumes of those, so they're the ones to get true colours. Uh, also, there's another one by uh, Dave Moore, who uh, created the historicalkits.co.uk website, which again is another library of of all the football kits in in the league. Uh, in terms of football in general, uh, the, my own personal ones would be the the Italy World Cup book from 1990 by, uh, I think his name is uh, Dominique Grimaud, uh, a Frenchman who's been translated into English. That is fantastic. Beautiful pictures. It's a large hardback book. That one's fantastic. 
and one more sorry i know i'm i'm <laughs> listing quite a lot of books here but one that's my own particular favorite is um uh, ray houghton's liverpool notebook from um from the 1988 to 89 season uh, he was a liverpool player also a play for republic of ireland that's an incredible book not not necessarily fantastically written but the subject matter is is superb jay's book selections are john devlin's true colors football kits from 1980 to the present day published in two volumes from a and c black publishers in 2005 the book by dave moore is the worst football kits of all time published by the history press in 2011. Dominique Grimaud's book is Italy World Cup 1990, The Great Moments, published by Ted Smart in 1990. And lastly, Ray Houghton's Liverpool Notebook, Inside Anfield, 1988-89, released by Guild Publishing in 1989. This coming Thursday evening, Two days before Chelsea plays Bayern Munich in the Champions League final, Munich's Olympic Stadium will play host to the final of the Women's Champions League. Olympique Lyon is in the final match for the third year in a row and is hoping to repeat as champion. Their opponent, FFC Frankfurt, is the most successful team in the 11-year history of the Women's Champions League, having won the title three times. In recent years, women's football in Europe has seen increasing attendance figures and media coverage. Still, there are great disparities among the various European nations in the levels of organization and the numbers of girls and women who participate in the sport. Meanwhile, the major European men's clubs are also seeking to better market themselves to female fans. Most successful in this effort has been the Bundesliga, which offers special family prices and other promotions to bring women to the stadiums. To get a perspective on women's football in Europe, I spoke with Jean Williams, Senior Research Fellow at the International Center for Sport, History, and Culture at De Montfort University, and the author of two books on women in soccer. Most recently, A Beautiful Game, International Perspectives on Women's Football. Jean is also a UEFA-licensed coach, and to start, I asked for her opinion of the governing body's efforts to promote women's football in Europe. Well, certainly in in recent years, um, there's been a a big expansion, both in the number of competitions and the variety of competitions. Uh, I think with the uh, establishment of the UEFA Women's Champions League, that that a more genuine idea of uh, European competition uh, has become evident because we, we now have club competition, of course. Um, and um, largely dominated, I have to say, by uh, the German teams, particularly Frankfurt and Potsdam. Um, Arsenal have been uh, uh, done, done quite well. The British team, Arsenal, have done quite well. Uh, Umea have also been significant. But, but notably last year, the uh, UEFA Women's Champions League was won by Lyon. So um, that's shaping up to be a pretty interesting competition this year because the final four are Arsenal, Frankfurt, Lyon and Potsdam. So it's pretty open for who's going to win that. 
And Gina, I understand that you're working on a research project that's actually funded by UEFA, correct? Yeah, uh, UEFA have recently begun to move into more academic research. And the project that they funded was to look actually at different ideas uh, of, of Europeanness. So the starting point for the project was to think about how different ideas of, of Europeanness are being uh, explored at the moment in political terms, in economic terms, but also how that's impacting on football and then how it's impacting on football for women. So uh, one of the things that I've tried to do as part of that research project is to look at whether there is women's football within each of the 53 um nations that are affiliated to UEFA and how advanced women's football is in each of those different nations. So is there an understanding or a connection the, with this broad idea of Europeanness, that Europeanness does include uh, the participation of girls and women, not only in football, but in sports? And this is something that uh, UEFA and, and perhaps larger European institutions are seeking to promote? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's it's a recognition, really, that uh, from the EU, for example, and from the European Commission, that um, sport is one of the really obvious areas of our cultural industries where women are represented, uh, uh, underrepresented, I should say, both as participants and in the administration and organisation of these industries. And, um, you know, we're just about to host in London, the first ever Olympic Games that is going to have roughly the same amount of men and women um, competitors. Um, so this is not specific to football, but it's among the first um, research that is looking at how might European identity be expressed in football and what happens when that expression of identity is gendered um, and how is it experienced by by women and girls. So the top countries in Europe in terms of the number of girls and women playing football are Germany and Sweden and meanwhile according to, to FIFA statistics England has roughly the same number of registered female players as the Netherlands and Norway, both of which are much smaller countries than, than England. So why is there a disparity between England and these other European countries in women's participation in football? Okay, well, the really interesting story there, I guess, is Norway. I mean, if you think about the size of the, the population and you think that football for women is not the number one sport, uh, in, in Norway, um, then it, it, it's kind of a dramatic success in that particular country. And in fact, if we had uh, been talking 10 years ago, Norway would have been one of the big successes of European women's football. One of the interesting things that they've done in Norway is that they integrated the women into their structures much um, earlier and much more successfully than many of the other European um, national associations. So that helps to explain that they think of it as football, not as what we would call football and then women's football. Um, 
that that explains part of the success in in Norway. In, in England, uh, there's been um, a general sort of antipathy towards women who play football, and it's not really been since 1993 that um, there's been any real enthusiasm for women, particularly at younger age groups. So. You couldn't really say, even at this stage, that women's football was um, a routine school sport for girls. So I want to ask about women as as spectators and fans uh, of men's football in Europe. Now, when I uh, will watch the Euro tournament, I'll I'll there'll be I'll see plenty of shots of women in the stands to the point that one could get the idea that that women are a large part of the fan base for football, men's football in Europe. Is is that accurate? Yeah, it, it is accurate. But again, I think you've got to, to differentiate between the proportion of women who attend regular club matches. Uh, and I think that that's re- remained relatively stable at about, uh, in Britain, I think it, the figure is about 20%, um, often helped by initiatives, of course, to, to get more families into uh, premiership matches, for example. So there's a difference between the number of women who attend regular club matches and big tournaments, just as the audience for um, a big festival like the Olympic Games or a World Cup is going to be different than what happens, um, you know, in in, uh, week in, week out in various sports. Well, I'll ask you, since this uh, podcast is New Books and Sports, do you have a, a favorite book, new or old, uh, on football that you recommend to us, whether whether women's football or men's football? I'm going to be very unoriginal and choose Arthur Hopcraft's The Football Man, People and Passions in Soccer. Um, it's a book that a lot of your listeners will be familiar with and um, people will have read and reread. Um, but particularly, I, it's a book that I recommend to students. And I still think that the writing, um, particularly the section on George Best, and the various uh, sections on the, the managers um, is some of the best football writing still. Um, to, to update a little bit and to go back to European football, there is a more recent text that uh, your listeners might not have listened to, uh, sorry, that your listeners might not have read, and that's by Christos Casimeris called Football Comes Home. Um, and this is a really interesting book where he looks at symbolic identities in European football. Um, I'd particularly recommend Chapter 4, Herald the Ambassador, where he starts to look at the heraldry and symbolism of various um, badges that teams wear on their shirts and what that means. So um, I suppose I'm going to... Um, be a little bit greedy and pick one old book and one new book. Gene Williams' choice of a classic football book is Arthur Hopcraft's The Football Man, People and Passions in Soccer. First published in 1968 and available in a 2006 reprint edition from RM Press. And Gene's more recent selection is Football Comes Home, Symbolic Identities in European Football written by Christos Casameras and published in 2011 by Lexington Books. 
This year's European Football Championship is being co-hosted by Poland and Ukraine, the first time that the tournament has been held in Eastern Europe since the collapse of communism more than two decades ago. In the run-up to the tournament, news reports about the host countries have typically pointed to corrupt dealings surrounding the venue contracts, fears of racism among both nations' fans, and political conflict that has led some EU ministers to threaten a boycott. In other words, the things that many people would expect from Eastern Europe. But what gets overlooked in these unfavorable reports is that Poland and Ukraine have long been integral parts of the European football community, with their teams competing in international friendlies and tournaments even during the decades of communist rule. Manfred Zeller is a lecturer at Helmut Schmidt University in Hamburg and a historian of Soviet football during the post-war years. His research work looks at the loyalties of fans across the USSR to the club Dinamo Kiev, which was one of the most successful and innovative teams in Europe in the 70s and 80s. To start, I asked Manfred to explain how soccer and sports culture in the late Soviet Union was different from that in Western Europe. Well, there are many similarities, but uh, many uh, other uh, aspects that make um, fan culture in the Soviet Union a very uh, fascinating field. First of all, if you think of the multinational dimension of the, uh, the multinational setting of the Soviet Union, and in this uh, respect, uh, you have a Soviet uh, soccer league where uh, teams of very uh, different uh, national backgrounds from different republics uh, play against each other. And so um, uh, soccer always was very similar to the today's uh, European Champions uh, League where uh, teams of various nationalities play against each other. And the second thing, I find uh, very interesting is um, focusing mostly on the post-Stalinist uh, era is the way in the Soviet Union a kind of uh, public or civil normalcy was was enabled in various fields of popular culture and soccer is one uh, field where you can show how, how this worked in particular because you know in Stalinist society you had this very sharp um, uh, uh, contradictions between heroes and uh, enemies of the state, and soccer also is a game in which strong oppositions uh, take place. You're, you know, a fan of the one or a fan of the other, but at the same time, this uh, can be expressed in a more um, a civil and uh, sometimes polite uh, way. So this is the starting point where it uh, becomes mostly uh, interesting uh, to me. Um, soccer as a post. Stalinist game in which uh, various nationalities can uh, express uh, strong oppositions in a field of popular culture that is not in 100% uh, controlled by uh, Soviet uh, ideology, but uh, nevertheless, Soviet ideology plays an important role uh, there. In other respects, um, fan culture in the Soviet Union is very uh, similar to the West. You have uh, different uh, teams. People decide to uh, root for one team and for 
the other, but the teams in the Soviet Union were um, organized uh, around different parts of the uh, state uh, economy and of the Soviet state. So, for example, uh, the CFK is the army team, uh, the central army team from Moscow, and many soldiers uh, rooted for this team. Uh, Dynamo is the team from uh, secret police and Ministry of uh, Interior, where uh, obviously those uh, who worked in these institutions root for them. Uh, Lakomotiv is the team of railway workers, uh, and so on. So it's been two decades since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Manfred. What what legacies of the Soviet period, if any, are evident in in football in contemporary Ukraine? I would like to stress out two legacies. The first is the meaning that soccer has in Ukrainian soccer culture. So this is uh, clearly something that uh, derives from the uh, long tradition and the successes mostly of Dynamo Kiev and others, which uh, during Soviet times not only were set an Ukrainian team on the top of the Soviet League, but also let the Ukrainians root for a team that represented the Soviet Union abroad and connected Ukrainian popular culture with the wider European popular culture, soccer culture. So there was something Ukrainian fans in their uh, letters and also the the uh, players in interviews, they expressed uh, Soviet values. But at the same time, uh, in the imagination of many fans, the soccer culture connected them to the outside world and connected them to, to the game. There's one uh, poem, a little poem I found in the archive of fans called uh, Dynamo Kiev, uh, uh, their uh, international referring to Internazionale Milano, the uh, best uh, team in, in Europe in the 1960s. So there was a, a connection with the outside world, and if you see these uh, debates today about the, um, about the European Championship uh, that will start in a month, this also is, and this is in, in contemporary Ukrainian uh, discourse, quite uh, obvious that this event uh, is imagined by by many people also as something to, to connect Ukraine with, um, with uh, Western Europe. Another legacy that um, can clearly be described is the legacy of soccer uh, patronage or oligarchism. As I mentioned before, uh, the uh, team of Dynamo Kiev uh, clearly was supported not only by the Ministry of Interior, but also supported by the uh, Central Committee of the uh, Communist Party, there in, in, in the Ukrainian state archive, you can, um, you can find uh, various uh, actions. The Central Committee and the Ukrainian Soccer Federation took on to, to support the team. There is uh, one report, for example, in 1983, when um, uh, the Central Committee did uh, research on the recent uh, failures of Dynamo Kiev and uh, criticized uh, the coach of the team, Valery Lobanovsky, and there were decisions to take uh, players from other uh, teams to Dynamo Kiev to make the team strong again. And uh, you also can find in the archive letters by uh, soccer fans which were sent to the Central Committee in which uh, these uh, these uh, letter writers also suggested to strengthen the team by uh, players from other uh, teams. So this idea to politically support the best team of the republic by popular figures in uh, the communist state 
and um, this also to me seems to be a clear legacy to today where uh, also uh, various uh, oligarchs are supporting um, different soccer teams and uh, the most famous uh, one in, in Ukraine today is Rina Akhmetov who uh, is uh, supporting um, Shakhtyor Donetsk and is um, is connected to this power circle which uh, the uh, uh, in which the the president of uh, Ukraine today is uh, is also part of. So Manfred, the one episode of of Ukrainian soccer history that is most widely known outside of Ukraine is is the so-called death match in mm-hmm. 1942. Uh, and right now there's a, a current Russian-made film called The Match, which, which deals with this episode. And this has been generating a lot of controversy in Ukraine. So can you tell us as, as a historian about the events surrounding the death match and, and why is this episode controversial in Ukraine? Well, first of all about the game, or I have to say about the games. So, so this was during the German occupation where uh, regular soccer games demonstrated or should demonstrate normalcy of the uh, German uh, occupation when obviously this was no normalcy, but this was the function of these uh, matches. And there uh, were uh, matches between a German Air Force team uh, called Flag F against a team of uh, local football club Start. And uh, what the Germans did not know but in, in this game, it were uh, mostly it was the pre-war team of Dynamo Kiev who played against the German, and uh, FC Start won the first game, and uh, there was a regame scheduled, and they also won the regame. So the Soviet myth that was created after these games is that a German SS officer uh, threatened the Ukrainian team during the break um, of the only game to let the Germans win. And the referee of the game also was an SS officer, but the Soviet team won nevertheless. After the game, the players were immediately arrested and uh, shot. And in the 1960s, Soviet school children knew the story, and they wrote uh, letters, for instance, to the Ukrainian Soccer Federation to get more information about those uh, Soviet heroes resisting the Germans. Now, so far, historians and others, they worked on uh, constructing uh, this myth. Uh, For instance, there is a photography that shows the players of the two teams cheering after the game. And uh, in fact, eight or nine of the players were arrested, um, but only nine days after the game. They uh, were arrested because they were denunciated by the coach of a rival Ukrainian soccer team. And this, to me, uh, seems to be very likely because as Dynamo players, we talked about this before, they were representing the Soviet security police. Dynamo was a team the German occupiers would not have played against to express normalcy. And um, But therefore, it is no surprise that those of the players who were killed later, they were shot, um, as all the authors I mentioned, right, uh, months later, together with a group of other prisoners in the Syrits concentration camp, and this had no connection with the soccer game at all. Interestingly, during Soviet times, there was no... and. Uh, there could be no reason for disputes over this memory. Uh, unlike today, 
Ukrainian soccer fans, but also officials in the sports bureaucracy, had strong reasons to support this myth. As you uh, can see in fan letters and other sources, this myth was part of a Soviet discourse which enabled Ukrainians to express, as I said before, um, Republican Ukrainian uh, identity. So this was something to be proud. Today, the situation is uh, different because the debates about the Soviet past and um, are, are much more uh, troubled, and this seems to be uh, the case in this uh, in this debate over this uh, new uh, film, because um, now Soviet heroism, from a Russian perspective, no longer is a heroism of a multinational Soviet population, but uh, it's a uh, more Russian-like heroism, while uh, collaboration with the uh, Germans is uh, something something for uh, the Ukrainians. So this is about the question: who who uh, collaborated with uh, with uh, Germany during the war, and who can um, be proud of this kind of uh, of Soviet and now Russian uh, heroes uh, described in this uh, kind of uh, movies? So this uh, clearly. It's about uh, the, the troubles uh, and um, disputed memory cultures of Russia and Ukraine today. If you have an interest in the history of soccer in the Soviet Union, Monfred recommends the award-winning book by Robert Edelman, Spartak Moscow, A History of the People's Team in the Workers' State, published by Cornell University Press in 2009. For all our talk of books and research and academic theories, this is a sports show. And what would a sports show be without some predictions? So I asked some of our guests to offer their picks for the teams that they think will play in the final game of the upcoming Euro tournament. Ah, Spain, Germany. Spain to win. All right. Thank you very much. Notoriously bad at predicting such things. <laughs> so then I should cancel out all of the, the business investing advice you gave me earlier? Uh, uh, yeah, probably. My personal opinion, uh, so not so statistical uh, one, but uh, more a personal feeling would be uh, to, to, to have uh, uh, three teams at the top, meaning uh, uh, England, uh, I think they have a lot of young players now. They are really performing. Uh, France, uh, they did uh, quite bad in the last uh, tournaments, but they have also a new generation that, for me, is now ready to, to win. And uh, also Germany, because Germany is probably the strongest uh, policy uh, that exists at the national associations level uh, today in Europe. Spain, of course, I won't say that because everybody would say Spain, so uh, I drop Spain. <laughs> I think Spain have become an all-too-predictable choice, but I'm going to stick with Spain. Spain will make the final, but I think they'll be beaten in the, in the final by Germany. The Germans are due a win soon. The, the Germans have a, have a good team, a winning mentality, and they know how to win tournaments. I mean, when you look across, across German squads, across a number of tournaments... German and West German squads. They have a winning mentality. They know how to win, and they have some very useful players too. Um, I'm going to go for Spain in the finals. Um, uh, I, yeah, I think a lot of the uh, 
following a lot of the European competitions, I think the, the Spanish players look very strong generally this season and um, going to go for Spain to uh, to retain it. It's it's very very difficult to to guess. I think everyone will say, or a lot of people will say, Spain. Um, for me, Spain have, have just changed international football. It's it would look like it was dying a death, and Spain have come in and they've revolutionised it. Um, they've they've shown that the idea that the international teams can't play as fluid football as as club teams is is a myth uh, because some a lot of the time they do. They can't play to the same level as Barcelona, but they're not too far off it. So Spain, I would say, really, really good chance of, of going all the way again, which will be their third tournament in a row, which, I, as far as I know, is unprecedented. Um, to who will play them in the final? Portugal, maybe. It would be nice to see them actually have a, uh, another run at it um, with Ronaldo, see if, if he can actually come to the fore. Um, I, I wouldn't rule out England. They will either have a terrible, terrible tournament or or a very good one, and they could go all the way. Um, we don't know who the manager is. They're, Wayne Rooney's going to be missing for two games, so it's difficult. But, yeah, m- maybe a, a Spain-England final with, with Spain to edge it for, for the good of football, maybe. Throughout this episode, we've been talking about the economics of football, the demographic picture of the players' market, the local, national, and European identities of fans, and the history of the sport. To wrap things up, it's appropriate that we talk about the game itself. What draws fans around the world to watch European football? To answer this question, we have a longtime football journalist, but not someone who covers European football. Instead, he watches soccer in Europe like we do, as a fan, albeit as one with a seasoned perspective on how the game is played. For close to two decades, Tim Vickery has been covering football in South America. He reports on the sport in Brazil and throughout the region for the magazines World Soccer and Sports Illustrated, the World Football Daily podcast, and on his own blog on BBC Sport. Of course, Tim is also a regular member of the panel on BBC Radio 5's World Football Phone-In, answering listeners' questions on teams and players in South America. I spoke to Tim about the cultural differences that are demonstrated in the styles of play, whether in Europe or South America, and how a football journalist like himself watches a match. We also take a look at the field for this year's Euro tournament, getting his guesses as a distant but expert football observer, on which teams will emerge from the groups and compete for the title. But to start, I wanted to find out how much of a following European football has in South America. When we hear of European soccer as a global game, what comes to mind are fans in Africa or East Asia or even North America. But South America has its own rich football heritage and storied clubs with passionate supporters. So given the prominence of local teams and leagues in South America, I asked him if European football draws a lot of attention there. Yeah, yes, it does. Uh, And I've been here for, what, coming up 18 years now. 
Uh, and uh, it's been really interesting to see how the relationships changed in that time. And when I first pitched up, which was soon after the, the, the 94 World Cup, um, the relationship between the local fan here and European club football was very remote. And you would see people wearing Barcelona shirts or Deportivo La Coruña shirts because of Homario or Beberto, who were playing for those clubs. So wearing those shirts was, a, was like a gesture of identification with a specific Brazilian player. Uh, and in no way it was a gesture of support for the club. Over the past 18 years, all that has changed. The globalization of football, um, the, the, the mass access that the South American fan has to, uh, to all kinds of European leagues. And you can, you can watch Russian football, Turkish football even, as, as, as well as the, all, all of the bigger leagues. Uh, and so now the fans here have uh, a relationship, they've built up a relationship with specific clubs. And it, it's, it's common to come across people who support, say, Corinthians and Arsenal. Uh, there are no Brazilian players at Arsenal at the moment, but it, a relationship has been built up with that club. Uh, and th- that, that's common all over the continent. Uh, th- there's, even though the, the, uh, the domestic club tradition is very... It's, it's such a strong tradition, and that, that continues to be, to be important. Um, despite that fact... Uh, the the impact of European football on on South American fans has been has been huge, and it's gone down the social scale as well. When it first came in, it was much more likely to be the moneyed fan with cable TV who who, who was following following this. But now, anyone who could yesterday um, was watching Barcelona. You know, it, it, it kicked off afternoon time in South America, like three forty-five in the south of the continent, one forty-five further north. I'm sure a lot of people were skiving off work in order to watch Barcelona, not because of any South, particular South American player. Um, obviously, people want to watch Messi, but more than anything, the people wanted wanted to watch Barcelona. So the impact of, of, of globalization on, on, on the, the mentality of the South American fan has been huge. And that, that also reflects in, in the South American player, because the kid grows up now wanting to, to, to play for these teams. And when I first used to speak to, uh, to, to kids, you know, 10 years old promising players, um, at the end of the 20th century, you know, 97, 98, their aim was to, was to play for, to be stars with the big local clubs. That's changed now. Now, you know, they, they couldn't find Spain on a map, but they want to play for Real Madrid or, or Barcelona. Now, there's been a lot, of, a lot written about the different styles of football from continent to continent, from country to country. And related to this, you had an interesting comment recently on the World Football Phone-In. You, you said that when a player receives the ball in space, he has a range of options in front of him, whether to dribble or to pass. And if he's going to pass, will he pass long or short, back or forward? And, and you said that the decision the player makes in that situation is culturally determined. So can you expand on that and explain how, how culture shapes a player's range of choices on the pitch? Now, I think this is one of the reasons for the, the global success of, of football. Um, that and the, the, the simplicity of the game hides uh, a real complexity. There's no other, no, no other sport that, that entails such a range of options and such a range of, of movements. And if you look at, uh, at British football, and in its mass form, it's, it's very much, when it started with the elite, uh, 
but it quickly became colonized by the industrial working class and, and reinterpreted by the industrial working class. And if you look at the values, what, uh, and to this day, what, the, the, uh, what British football places a high value on, it's things that come from the experience of being the first country to go through industrial revolution and being the first in, to industrialize means of inevitably that uh, your industrialization is labor intensive. Um, and, and so th- what is valued is physical strength and reliability. Those are the values that are important down the mine shaft or on the factory floor. And those are the values that, that, that are highly prized on the football field. Physical strength and reliability. And even in, in recent times, someone like Alan Shearer embodied those kind of, uh, th- those kind of values. Um, South American football growing up in a context which is more semi-feudal than industrial. Uh, and uh, firstly, I think part of the reinterpretation that the South Americans did with the sport has to do with the low centre of gravity of, uh, of the typical build of, of the South American. Uh, and many would see influence of, of dance culture in there. Um, but also, I, th- I think, uh, and I think this, this is fundamental, that, that, that kind of semi-feudal thing where you are born, uh, you are born a pawn or you are born a king. That's the way it works. But football subverts that, and that's, that's one of the reasons, I think, for the appeal of, of football in, in South America. That's one of the reasons that, that, that it, it, it caught on so quickly. Football was a, was, it was a mechanism much, much more focused, placed on individual achievements, on, on the individual. And football was a mechanism whereby the gifted individual, that fellow who could humiliate the opposition, a lot of emphasis on humiliation as well, when a little bit of a hip sway could make the, the opponent fall on the floor, he is someone who's been born a pawn, but he becomes king through, through that moment. So it's a subversion of, of uh, the lack of social mobility in, in, in South American countries. And I'm, I'm convinced this is one of the reasons that, that football is, is so popular, because cultures all over the world can interpret the game in their own way and, and, and can appreciate different things in, in the same game. It's a universal language that we speak with different accents. So let me ask you, Tim, I imagine that you're going to watch the Champions League semifinal later this afternoon. And uh, how do you watch a football match? So do you, do you follow the ball? Do you uh, follow a player? Are you looking for tactical formations? How, how is it that you, you watch a match on television? Yeah, well, uh, the, the, um, the game today, the, the Real Madrid-Bayern Munich game, I, I won't be working it. So I'll watch it for my own amusement. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when, I'm, when I'm working a game, I must have pen and paper in front of me uh, and I must have the, the uh, uh, I'll, I'll draw a pitch uh, and uh, I'll look for, for the tactical formations. If I'm not doing that, I'm not concentrating. Mm-hmm. So I've, 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 I've got the tactical formations and the tactical movements in front of me. And as the game goes on, to, to ensure I'm concentrating, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be writing down the key moves and, and, and obviously goals and, and, and near misses and also, also in any little observation. But what I'm looking for, I'm, I'm looking for, well, first I'm looking, to be, I'm looking for those two things that football gives you. I'm looking to be moved, mm-hmm. to be thrilled. I'm looking to be caught up in, in, in the emotional side of the action. But I'm also looking 
to to dissect the thing on a, on a on a on a on a more rational basis, and to try and work out why side A is superior to side B or why side A is not superior to side B, um, looking to identify what is the key idea which is moving side A or or, or or side B. What are they trying to do on the field? What what what, what have they been sent out to do? What what is the, the collective idea? And also also looking for for individuals who I think have a future in the game. Um, this, because that, that, that's one of the great privileges of, of, of South American football. It's like going to the, to the movies and, and, and seeing the trailers of the forthcoming attractions. So I'm always on the lookout for, for a player who might not be well-known now, but an individual who, who in five or six years' time is going to be a household name all over the world. So that was interesting. So even when you're working a game as a journalist, you allow yourself to be caught up in, in the beauty and the emotion of the game? I want to, yeah. If if not, why do it? If if not, if you not, you lose. I know football does give you those two pleasures: the 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 emotional thing and 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 the rational thing. Um, and and sometimes, especially with the amount of the amount of games I watch, and sometimes you can you can lose that emotional side. And I always think that's that, that that's sad. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that, that's a moment when, when when you start to lose your own soul. I think when so I think it's important to try and be caught up in in, in the emotion of the game. All right, well, let's look at the field, Tim, in, in the Euro 2012 tournament and get your predictions, whether rational or emotional, on how the, the tournament will play out. And selfishly, because I'm going to be in a betting pool with, with some friendly stakes on the line, I'm going to I'm going to write down your picks. And uh, so let's go through the groups. Well, I'm, I'm entirely the wrong man to ask because... Uh, <laughs> well, you're an expert outsider, so... Uh, but what you, I do is South Americans. Yeah. So on the European national teams, uh, I, I just haven't really... So we can go through and I can make me picks. But they, they will be gloriously, gloriously uninformed and, and, and ill-educated and probably all the better for it. You know? yeah. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it. But um, I, I fear they're not going to be very informed guesses at all. All right, so your your guess guesses rather than informed guesses. So let's start with Group A. So uh, we have the co-host Poland, uh, we have Greece, Russia, and the Czech Republic. So so which two teams do you think will will come out of there? Um, it doesn't look like the strongest group on on, on paper, does it? Um, so in in a, in a relatively weak group, I think you probably back the hosts. So maybe Poland and Russia. Okay, Poland and Russia. Okay. So then Group B is a strong group. This would be the, uh, the group of death for this year's tournament. Uh, so we have Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, and Portugal. I think Germany, everyone is looking at Germany as uh, – because Germany have got that collective idea correct – uh, and the, 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 I, I am fascinated with it, with what ha- what's happened to German football, um, how they've managed to, to, to go about it. And German football in so way, it's a country I've never been to, but uh, a country I've never felt any affinity with whatsoever. But in so many ways, it does seem to be a model. You know, the way that, that the German club football has this balance between business and, and, and culture, far better than, than I think we have it in, in England. And the way that they're able to to give some some priority to to their national team, um, whereas English football has has sold its soul to to and one of the original ideas behind the Premier League was to the original justification for it was was to boost the chance of the national team and that because it doesn't pay to the clubs that seems to have gone by the board entirely so I have to go with Germany okay. and uh, the other one for me is between Holland and, and Portugal and I'm going to go with Holland. You're going to go with Holland, okay. All right. So Group C, also a tough group. Uh, Croatia, Ireland, Italy, and Spain. 
The, the worry about uh, Spain would be a little bit of jadedness uh, after mm-hmm. we've seen that with, with Barcelona anyway, and that, that could be the case with, the, with Real Madrid, um, whether their season ends effectively soon or, or, or on May the 19th. But I'm still going to go with them. Um, I still think it, it, it's a team that, that no one really wants to uh, w- w- wants to face, and it's hard to look to look good against them. Um, but I, I would just have a little little flea in my ear about you know maybe that they might be be jaded. But I'll still go with them. Yeah, um, difficult one. I'm going to go with Croatia. Okay. And Ireland will Ireland will will will, will give nothing away. Um, Italy have come back strongly from the disaster of of two years ago, but I'm still going to go with Croatia. Okay, okay. And lastly, Group D, we have England, France, Sweden, and the co-host Ukraine. Well, uh, I'm going to go with France. And... uh, so they've repaired the damage of two years ago, you would say? Well, it, it seems so, although the test is always the tournament. And, and th- this is one aspect where I think Europe is so different from South America. Uh, the, the South American qualification campaign for the World Cup uh, is the most competitive in the world. There's, there's, there's no such thing as an easy game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we, we saw this in the last World Cup because all the, all, I even know um, none of them went on to the final. All of the South American sides were competitive. They all made it through to the second round. And I think they all made friends on the way. And I think that that, that qualification campaign had really made them battle-hardened. That's not the case with uh, European qualification. So I, I think the qualification campaign, and we, we've seen this in history time and time again, the qualification campaign can give false hopes uh, about a team. Maybe that, that's, that, that's a, a doubt that I've got about Italy. It's one of the reasons I didn't go for Italy in, in, in their group. Um, but, but France seems to have more strength and depth in talent. So I'm, I'm going to go with France, and I'm also going to go with hosts. So I'll, I'll go with Ukraine. Uh, England winning, or England making any progress for me, would be, would be the kind of equivalent of Denmark 92, you know, when the, the team climbs off the beach. Mm-hmm. We just had the news that Stuart Pearce might be picking a team, might be picking a squad, and not taking, taking, the, taking a squad, which, which is, such, is such a crazy way to go about things. You never know, it might even work, but it would be a huge surprise. Yeah, yeah. All right, so now that, rather than going through the whole knockout phase, let's skip right to the end. And uh, so the final match, July 1st in Kiev, which, which two teams will be there? Uh, I'm going with Germany. Okay. If I say Germany and Spain, that's so dull, isn't it? Yeah, so yes, gonna... yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Germany and France. Germany and France, okay. And, and who are you picking for the champion? Uh, I'm going for a surprise. I'm going for a France win. Oh, really? Well, that is a surprise. All Just right. to make it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Okay. All right. And one last, one last thing, Tim, before I let you go. Since this is a podcast about sports books, I'll ask you if you have a, a recommendation of a, of a favorite football books, whether old or new, South America, England, Europe. What, what, what would you recommend? Uh, with, with no hesitation, I would rep- recommend um, David Goldblatt's The Ball is Round. It's a global history of football, um, which is... Uh, you, you end up reading it, being entertained, and 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 being informed. Um, and the, the scope of the work is breathtaking. And it took him it took him ages, um, but uh, you know it it would have taken me three lifetimes, I think, to to uh, to do the same thing in in with the same level of of research. Uh, I think it's 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 an absolutely wonderful book. Um, just don't drop it on your foot. Um, other favourites. I haven't read it for a long time, but uh, Eamon Dumphy's 
diary of a footballer called Only a Game. I don't know if you know it. Um, it was uh, mid-70s when Eamon Dunphy was a talented player with the Millwall in the old English second division. Uh, and it, it's... It, it's uh, he's, he's very observant. He's very intelligent. And it captures the disillusion, I think, very well. Um, because it's a diary of a season which, which is very, very disappointing. It also captures the the relationships inside a team. Um, the, because one of the fascinating things about, about the game is that the glory is, is both collective and individual. And that tension between... It's the tension that made the Beatles, you know, the, the, uh, and, and separated them as well, you know, the, the, the tension between individual and, and collective glory. Uh, that, I think that, that's such a fascinating area of study and, and football brings it to the surface so well. And Dunphy writes about it very well. And I think it's improved by the fact that it's a disappointing season. And all teams talk about how, how they're together and the union and, and when they're winning. Now, it's easy to bring out those cliches, but when the team is disappointing, then perhaps you see the truth of the, of the relationships in the camp. And I think the, the, the Dunphy book is, is greater on, on this, which is a fundamental issue, not, not just of football, but human achievement, that tension between individual and collective glory. Tim Vickery's recommendation for football reading is Eamon Dunphy's Only a Game, The Diary of a Professional Footballer, first published in 1979 and available in a reprint edition from Penguin. And Tim gives a second vote to David Goldblatt's History of World Football, The Ball is Round. My sincere thanks to Tim and to all my guests for taking time to offer their recommendations of favorite books and their expertise on soccer in Europe. If you have questions about any of the books that were mentioned in this episode, you can visit the Facebook page of New Books and Sports. Go to facebook.com slash newbooksandsports, or you can visit our website, newbooksandsports.com, and hit the tab marked Pitch at the top. Later in the summer, we'll round up another team of experts for a special episode on the Olympic Games. And, of course, in other episodes, I'll be talking with the authors of recent books on basketball, violence in sports, the history of swimming, and American football. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com to find interviews with the authors of new publications in history, biography, sociology, European affairs, and a host of other topics. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Thank you.